Dog Talk and Kitties Too. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I love dogs and cats and the people who care about them. I'm here every week with authors and experts to expand our appreciation and understanding of the ways that animals are part of our world. To hear other episodes of this show and other informative pet talk radio shows I co-host with top veterinarians and experts, please go to RadioPetLady.com. Dog Talk is a production of Pet Media Inc., which is solely responsible for its content. The Radio Pet Lady Network also produces the Dog Film Festival, which celebrates the love between dogs and their people and the rescue groups that bring them together. With a generous grant from the Petco Foundation, the festival is traveling to 12 destinations across the country, including East Hampton on August 2nd, and will be back in New York City with the second annual festival October 15th. You can find more information at dogfilmfestival.com. This show is brought to you with the generous support of Waruva, a privately owned pet food company that uses people food to make food for cats and dogs in their family's human food facility. Pouches of their cats in the kitchen, their dogs in the kitchen, their more economical BFF, best feline friend, and all the varieties of canned Waruva for cats and little dogs are made with the same care and specifications used to make food for people. Waruva's owners want to feed your pets and their own dogs and rescued kitties Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa, for whom the company is named, with ingredients that are good enough for people to eat. I am here with Bill Sacre from the League of Humane Voters. I didn't know there was such a league. I didn't know that voting could be humane. Why wouldn't it be? The laws of the land affect all of us. So, Bill, welcome to the show. Thank you for being part of the League of Humane Voters and explain to us what it is and how we can all become more humane in our own lives. Well, Tracy, thank you so much, and it's really a pleasure uh, to be here. I'd just like to start by, I'm just going to read the mission statement of the League of Humane Voters, and then we can go from there. The mission of the League of Humane Voters is to create, unite, and strengthen local political action committees that work to enact animal-friendly legislation and to elect candidates for public office who will use their votes and influence for animal protection. Well, what's that mean? It means basically we're lobbyists for animals, and we're nonpartisan. We're independent. We don't ask for any money from anybody. We just want your name and information. We want you to be a part of our database so that we can leverage your vote ah, and help animals. Interesting. So in in the lobbying world, which mm-hmm. I, I imagine I'm a bit like the other unwashed masses, you know, lobbyist <laughs> is kind of a negative word. But That's on correct. the other hand, it's how politics takes place. People lobby for their interests and who those people are and what their interests are obviously vary enormously. So how does a lobbyist function? You're you're in New York, right? We're in New York. There are 11 uh, chapters of – I'm sorry. There's 11 state organizations of the League of Humane Voters. Uh, We are in New York. The whole premise of the organization, Tracy, is that this is best accomplished at the the local and state level. Uh, So we're New York State. There's another uh, very active uh, organization in uh, in California. Uh, They're very active in Georgia. Uh, and as I say, there's 11 other states. But uh, what we do is we take a look at potential legislation that might be needed. Uh, we'll actually draft it, and we will wow. approach a legislator 
uh, and say, hey, is this something that you could be comfortable with and you could sponsor for no us? No kidding. And, and that's that's the way it's done. And as you know, that's how lobbying is done. No, I didn't know that. See, I had no idea. So yeah. you write up this legislation that says, uh, you know, like in Vermont, where I now live, it's totally legal to keep a dog on an eight-foot chain year-round outdoors, and there might be a proviso some shelter would be nice. It's just horrible. I mean, that, that, that's exactly right. And we have a bill that's very analogous to that right now uh, that's going through our legislator. And, and it's interesting how these things, uh, how the parallels of the different states. And, and hopefully when the League of Humane Voters gets to be a national organization, there would be some wonderful best practice sharing because you just put your finger right on it. You have the same situation there that we have in New York State and I'm sure in, in many other states around the country. So if we could get something that has passed New York or passed Vermont or something else, we could shoot that to our brethren and the other organizations and say, hey, oh. take a look at this as potential for your organization. And that's really where we'd like to go. You just leverage the, the voices of the voters um, to, to improve things for animals. And that's not only companion animals, that's wildlife. Sure. Uh, that's farm animals. Uh, you know, that's animals. I mean, nice. That's, that's basically what we do. So, so in other words, you draft this legislation that says, you know, we'd like to – by the way, I didn't actually know this about New York, having lived in East Hampton year-round for 13 years and having been born in New York originally. <laughs> it sounded so primitive and so kind of rural and uh, ignorant. What do you mean? It's 10 degrees below and your dog's outside on a chain? Yup. Sure thing. In fact, Candy Udell from London Jewelers was on the show not long ago. She has – partnered with the Suffolk County SPCA to provide igloo housing for individual dogs in people's backyards that have been identified as a dog that never comes in the house, chain or no chain. That's so, a great organization, by the way. We're very familiar with them. <clears throat> Excuse me. And they what's, do, they, what's the they name do, of them? I've forgotten. I'm so The bad. ASPCA of... No, uh, no. It's, it's the SPCA, not the ASP. Nothing to I'm do sorry. with the ASPCA. That's okay. You're right. But they actually have a project house or something. Project That's right. Animal a little... House. It's kind of a dome... Uh, I don't know what yes. you'd call it. Styrofoam or no, plastic. No, they're igloos. Or, they're igloos. Yes, that's right. That's exactly right. And they have an L-shaped doorway so the wind doesn't whistle right in. That's right. But I mean that... So that's, that's a step up, but that's, you know, you don't... It's, obviously, it doesn't have HVAC in there, you know. Right. No, it doesn't. And we also would like to think that if, you know, in this enlightened time, that if somebody has a domestic pet animal, that they might treat them a little less than like maybe a goat in the backyard because yes. we, we would think that was pretty nice for the goat. He could stand on top of the igloo. He could go in the igloo. But in the end of the day, he's a farm animal, you know? So yeah, We had a, a, an analogous situation to that, uh, Tracy, in, in Brooklyn earlier this year uh, when it was snowing outside and it was very cold and we had uh, uh, demonstrators over there outside and, and what was video. The situation? What was the specifics? In well, it was, two, it was two, two dogs that a homeowner oh had left outside in a backyard in Brooklyn. And uh, d- despite being approached with, uh, with rational thought, uh, they just didn't want to do anything. And they said, hey, these were outside dogs, and thank you very much, and go away. And, and uh, to the chagrin of many, many people involved, there really wasn't anything that uh, could be done to actually make this happen. It, it all had to be done on a, on a kind of a you know, volunteer or want to cooperate basis, right? So the, yes. the, lo- the law that's going, through the, that's going through the assembly now has some teeth in it and it says uh, it's uh, uh, certain degrees and certain times of day. All right. Nice. So, uh, well, you know, again, only 2% of the bills make it through. 
Tracy. So, so explain that. Explain that, Bill. So he, here are all these lobbyists. Some people want guns. Some people want medications. Right. Some people that's want right. a, a a dam built. And they, the lobbyists, just so I get, they write, they write it up. Here's what we'd like, and they go to these various delegates on a mm-hmm. state and local level, and they say, "How does this sound to you? Would you like to back this? Would you and some of your confreres like to put your your shoulder into this?" That's exactly right. And okay. what's in it for that? What's in it for that legislator? Well, that legislator may have an interest in uh, in animal animal welfare, animal rights, or whatever you want to call it. And there are several legislators out there. Uh, both in the Senate and the Assembly, that will lend their voice. Now, it's a two-way street. They have other things that that they're interested in moving, whatever, and we would certainly try to, to work with them and collaborate as, as best we can with, with anything. And then there are other bills out there that that we didn't introduce. In fact, the majority of them we didn't. Uh, they came from someplace else. But we've looked at them and we've decided that, yes, this is something that we want to support. And we have 10 core bills every year that we pick and say, uh, you know, this is our, uh, our we're, these are going to be our targets, okay? Uh, and we have a legislative breakfast and we have all of the legislators, no the legislators in in Albany, and we have the bills blown up around the room and we just walk them no around kidding. and say, these, this is what we want to do and we ask for your support. Uh, and by the way, you can have a vegan bagel and some coffee if you like to. <laughs> So, wow! So, so, so that's what that's what we do. So that's really cool. So the, the cynic in the crowd might say, "Yeah, okay, you aren't taking money from the public, but what's in this for you? Other than you want to have humane treatment for animals, you personally, Bill Sacre, or the other people with you, is everyone a pro bono person who believes in a greater good for animals?" Yes, that's exactly right. No and way. Tracy, we, we don't. The reason we we don't solicit money because we're not a charity. All right, so right. you can't you can't write a check for fifty bucks and then deduct it off your income tax. It doesn't work that way. Okay? But you could write a check for 50 bucks if hearing this you go that is so cool well we would love that but but, but again the vegan bagel i mean they they don't some some of us chip in a little bit and uh and and again if if somebody elects to to be a part of our organization or really just a part of our database there's there's no solicitation for funds We, we that's that's not our issue all right our issue is we just want your your voice and your vote, and we want to be able to aggregate that for animals, and, and the rest of it will so fall. In other words, when you go to Albany for the, the animal-free product uh, little breakfast, mm-hmm. and you show them these 10 bills, do you also tell them, and we have 14,000 names in Suffolk County, and we have 20,000 names in the New York greater area? Well, we don't, we're not quite that specific on it, but they, 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 they know uh, that we have, um, we have people and that we have a powerful brand. And many times, Tracy, they will come to us and say, would you write uh, a memo of support for us? Uh, So for instance, here's a memo of support that we did for a bill to, uh, to prohibit declawing of cats. Now, Yay! One, Yay! Would, one would think that that's a pretty straightforward and that that would have support up and down the street, but it doesn't, all right? So oh. the sponsor of the organization, I'm sorry, the sponsor of the bill in the assembly, very, very animal-friendly person, um, came to us and said, would you issue a memorandum of support? And of course we did. Sure. Okay, so we issue, we issue that, and then we copy uh, the counterpart on the Senate side, uh, and then most importantly, the assembly member uh, of the of the committee that have sway over this bill. And in this case, it's the agricultural committee. Oops. And uh, oops. So yeah, and not an easy sell sometimes. No, I mean, let's no. be realistic, right? That's right. And Different we, interests. 
That's that's exactly right. But but we we really try to keep a civil dialogue, and and we we can be unhappy with the positions that people have taken, but we do not want to be unhappy or in any way critical of the person. You know, Good. I hate Senator so and so or Assembly person. No, that gets you nowhere, and we we don't want adversarial relationships. They're bad, and nobody wins. So Correct. as long as you can dialogue, you got some possibility of some agreement okay Definitely. when the dialogue shuts down you it's forget it just well you on. had you had said without saying names as if you weren't supposed to say names that you had these two legislators who were really leaning in this direction frequently or really supportive yes. don't we want to give a big shout out to their names oh absolutely and on the, on the assembly side it's uh it's assembly member rosenthal and on the uh, on the Senate side, on this bill, it's it's Senator Griffo and both of them animal advocates with long standing. But we, you know, we, as I said early on, we are nonpartisan. All right, right. and we have wonderful Republicans, we have wonderful Democrats, and we just they're just wonderful people. Uh, so we we really do not ever uh, take a political side in this. We're for animals. That's that that's what we're all about. But I would say that on a local and state level, people often maybe vote without really knowing what any of the issues are or not caring about maybe some of them. And they vote sometimes based on how they view themselves being a Democrat or Republican. when that's not really of any particular value, whereas animal, animal thoughtfulness would be a good criteria on which to make a vote. You as, a, as an individual person, if you're like, I don't know, well, I'm a Republican, I guess I'll just vote Republican. But if, if they had this information, and I'm sure you make it very available, that, that certain individuals will go out of their way to support or introduce humane legislation for various kinds of creatures, that in itself is plenty of good reason for a vote. It would restore one's confidence in the political system if, if it really worked. Well, it's it's always interesting. We always encourage people to, uh, when when you're evaluating candidates, ask them. You're at a candidate's forum or something or a town hall meeting. Ask them, how do you feel about right. the way that our local animal shelter is being run? I see. Uh, you know, and a lot of, and it's it's interesting, Tracy, because a lot of times these candidates are not ready for that question because they don't get it. Okay. Right. And and here in in New York City, before the morality election, uh, we had the first annual uh, town meeting, or I guess candidates forum, that was, that was devoted totally to animal issues. And it was very interesting to watch some of the people up there that you could tell hadn't really given a lot of thought. Right, right. <laughs> Their mind was on other things. I mean, like every so often, Bill, this is a shocking fact, but I'll meet someone and they'll say, well, what do you do? And I talk about Dog Talk and the Radio Pet Lady Network and the Dog Film Festival, and they look a little like blankly and I say, well, do you have a dog? And this is incredible or a cat. And there are people who don't. So you know what? What can we say? It takes all kinds to make a world. There's actually people that don't think about animals all the time. And I'm being facetious. They, they have other things that they might think about a lot of the time. But it is obviously a great feeling to find like-minded people that are in a position to make that difference. I, I don't know what happened um, in terms of Mayor Bloomberg, when you say Merrillty, but his daughter, Georgina Bloomberg, who is a, a very accomplished equestrian hunter jumpers, mostly jumpers, and she's been involved in New York City in, you know, get the cart horses off the street and puppy mill things. And she's actually won a Pet Hero Award from the Pet Philanthropy Circle, which is a, a wonderful group of people who uh, happen to be now a partner with the Dog Film Festival because they're all about education, you know, and raising awareness. And I'm sure that that, uh, if you don't already have a connection to them, 
you should have because a lot of the, their members and the advisory council and so forth would welcome with open arms anything they could do to be part of the voice. Yes, we, we do. And we're very we're very aware of what uh, Ms. Bloomberg has done. And, and it's very, very much appreciated. Uh, you know, if nothing else, Tracy, to bring visibility, to bring yes, it out exactly. into the open, mm-hmm. you know, that in itself is successful. I mean, just just walking by the theater here where you had uh, your event last year. And I was standing there and somebody said, gee, what's a dog film? What's what's that? What could that be about? All right. And somebody said, well, they're going to have dogs or dogs going to attend it. Is that it? Are we going to have dogs? And, you know, it was, it was really it's fun. Right. And of course, I, I, I you know, I recently was talking with Suzanne Kogan, who's the president of the Petco Foundation. That's our sponsor. And we have already four locations across the country, uh, Rochester, New York, Los Angeles, Seattle and others probably Chicago, where the dogs are actually going to be. It's a bring-your-own-dog event. Oh, that's funny. And the dogs, it'll be by, for, and about dogs, the first time in the history of the world. Uh, it, it is a great feeling to to kind of raise a different consciousness. And, you know, I hope those people came in from the cold. It was a semi-hurricane last year and found out for themselves. I will say one of the great things about email on the internet is that I had an, an email from you, I think, just asking something about the second annual film festival. And I saw on your signature, League of Humane Voters. I thought, did I see that right? Because of course, po- not of course, but as it turns out, I'm fairly apolitical and politics is not at the front of my brain. I thought, well, that sounds really interesting. So I invited you to come talk to us and thrilled that you did and thrilled that we can all realize that there are so many do-gooders behind the scenes in various ways. And we should all add our voice to it. How do we? How do we give you our name and our whatever? Our just Google uh, League of uh, Humane Voters, okay. and it'll, it'll all come up. Uh, the national will come up, and the chapters. And all, fa- same thing, uh, Tracy, on Facebook. You can go on there and just uh, put League of Humane Voters, and all the chapters will come up. Nice. So. Let's let's all do that because it it doesn't ca- cause it's no skin off our nose. We don't have to go out there and and offer you know toast up a vegan bagel and tell the guy it tastes just as good as a real one. <laughs> you guys have that burden. You know what I mean? <laughs> no, it's fine. Vegan bagels are great. You know. Bill, it's great to, to meet you. It's great to know about this work, and I hope that anything you're doing that that the various people that listen to me can help with, that you'll shoot me an email and let me know, and I'll be sure to connect you to the Pet Philanthropy Circle because there's a lot of people on that circle who would definitely be of, of value to you. They're not politicians, but but they care a lot, and they're New York-based, a lot of them. So Well, that would that would be terrific, Tracy, and much, much appreciated, and we look forward to seeing you uh, in absolutely. October. We, absolutely. We will absolutely be there. Wonderful. It's gonna. You better. You better bring a, a cushion because it's gonna be many, many showings. Not like last year. They, they won't be. They won't be as long. But they're gonna be so various. And there's. I mean, already the films that I've got together is just c- completely joyful. So looking forward to seeing you. Wonderful. Then. Thanks a lot, Bill. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye, Tracy. This show is made possible in part by Precious Cat Litter, owned by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian in Colorado who has created innovative litters for the health of all members of the family with low-dust litters that allow everyone to breathe easier. Precious Cat's newest health monitor litter has broken new ground by allowing people to find the early signs of kidney disease in their kitty cats and intervene before damage is done, prolonging the quality and length of a cat's life. This show is also brought to you with the generous support of Nordic Naturals, omega-3 fish oil products that provide dogs and cats with the same premium quality omega-3 fish oils as for people. Research shows that even the best diets are deficient in the essential fatty acids found in omega-3 oils. 
However, all fish oil is not created equal. The Nordic Naturals difference is that their oil comes from Norway, where they use responsibly sourced healthy wild fish and third-party testing to guarantee purity and freshness. I have a really special guest today, someone I, well, millions of us actually have seen on YouTube in a very famous video of Surf Dog Ricochet, which is one of the film's Actually, one of the only, it's a video in the Dog Film Festival. And the young man who is the star of the film, along with Ricochet the Dog, has just graduated, 21 years old, from USC Film School. Those of you that that know Hollywood and know film schools, now that's a huge accomplishment. But what's (laughs) additionally really interesting about you, Patrick, is that you have led most of your life with a pretty serious spinal cord injury, and have gone on to have a really full and extraordinary life with a dog by your side, sometimes with a dog on a surfboard with you. But I welcome you to the show, and and I think that you're a great example of what the bond can mean between dogs and people, but also a great example to people with any sort of challenge or disability who might might want to think about getting a service dog or have one and, and maybe don't embrace it in the in the active way that you do. So welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's I'm, a pleasure. Uh, I'm, really excited. I'm very excited, too, because one of the things that surprises me is that your dog, Kona, who's a beautiful yellow lab, and there's a picture of you in the blog that I've written about you that people have, I hope, already found. And those of you that have seen Patrick at a younger age on a surfboard, it's pretty amazing. Um, I, I, he's nine years old. And my understanding was that service dogs, at least for the blind, that they retire them at I don't know, what is it, eight or something? I'm like, oh, that must be terrible. So he looks like a, a, a hale and hearty guy. You were, you were teamed with him from positive teams in San Diego. Tell us a little bit first, before we talk about how you wound up needing a service dog, about the whole experience of being teamed with him. Was he your first dog? How old was he then? The whole process of, of, being, of becoming bonded and becoming a team with a dog. Yeah, uh, so Kona and I have been together since 2009, um, actually really shortly before the video of Ricochet and and me surfing was filmed. Um, I got in my soft, right before my sophomore year of high school, and uh, it was right around the time that I was going to start driving. So Whoa. I have a, I, yeah, I have a, a van that I drive with hand controls and stuff, but... Um, you know, right when I, when I was about to turn 16, um, I was telling, you know, talking to my mom and being like, hey, you know, I want to drive. How are we going to make this work? And she said, you, uh, you're you going to need someone with you. Like, if you fall or need help or something, I want, to ha- I want you to have someone with you. So you can either drive with me or we can get you a dog. Whoa. And I love my mom to death. <laughs> I love her to death. But, <laughs> I decided on I hear you. I hear you. Let's let even though I said let's talk about your relationship with him. Let's talk a little bit about the the severity of your spinal cord injury and how old, how it happened and how you turn at age 16 and you need to have hand controls to drive a car, but thank God you can drive a car and have a whole life. So, right. how did you wind up in this condition or situation, whatever the proper word is for it? Um, yeah, condition is good, I suppose, but I will um I was 14 months old, and um, it was September 24th, 1995, and my mom and I, we lived in this little beach town, um, and we walked to the grocery store, and we're walking back, and there was a 
guy parked outside of our house in this kind of dirt parking lot who was arguing with his girlfriend and um, just kind of wrong place, wrong time. He backed up without looking or paying attention. Um, oh my you know, gosh. He was distracted and angry. And the back passenger bumper um, clipped me and pulled me underneath the car. So like oh I was God. I was walking next to my mom, but the car knocked me out of her hands and um, and completely ran me over. And there was a Whoa. witness across the street who um, you know saw the whole thing happen and ran over and gave me CPR and mouth to mouth and revived me and kept me stable until the paramedics came. And then after some, you know, going into surgery and, um, you know, a little bit of recovery, the doctors uh, came out and told my mom that I had sustained a C4-5 incomplete spinal cord injury and would be paralyzed from the neck down for the rest of my life. And here was a mom uh, with a 14-month-old little boy. You probably just learned yeah. to walk recently. I Yeah. Well, I started walking when I was nine months old. Oh, I, really? I like to tell people... I like to, kind of a crazy baby. I would jump off things and pull things down. So if the car didn't get me, I was going to. Oh, no. <laughs> but I was thought you were going to say, something. well, I got my, my walking in really early in life because I didn't realize it was going to be cut short. Oh, yeah. That's your Oh, my goodness. Um, yeah. Do you remember it? No, I don't. I don't remember anything. Lucky. Lucky, right? There's, there's one picture of me. Um, on a skateboard, like my, we had this teenage neighbor who, um, you know, put me on his little skateboard. Well, I mean, not little skateboard, but stood me on there and kind of pushed me around. And I think I remember that, but it could just be the picture. I'm not, I, that's true I'm of my childhood sure. too. I see pictures and I think I think I remember it, but maybe I just remember the picture. Exactly. So exactly. you became a surfer before you became what I like to call a movie star in this marvelous movie that's that's in the uh that's in the dog film festival that's traveling the country you had become a pretty serious surfer when you were only 8 years old with an organization which got a great name life rolls on wow right so yes. talk about yes. that cool organization so i was 8 years old and i went to go see this movie called step into liquid and it had uh a guy by the name of Jesse Billauer uh, surfing in it, and Jesse is in a wheelchair. He has the same level of spinal cord injury that I do. Okay. And so I was eight years old, and I was like watching this dude surf really big waves while laying on his stomach. And I told my mom, I was like, I want to do that. <laughs> I want to surf. And she said, Okay, well, you know him. <laughs> so I sent him a message, and a month later, I went out with his organization. He he founded Life Holds On, and uh, ever since I've been hooked. Wow. And I, gone to just about every event um, in the 13, almost 14 years since. I've, I've only missed a handful of events, and Jesse and I are really close friends now, and um, yeah, it's kind of, I was, it, I didn't expect it to be as big of a part of my life as it is, but, um, you know, I've gotten pretty good. Well, I think you're you're pretty good. I think you're one of the most modest people I've ever met. I mean, you're a member of Team USA, and you were ranked fifth fifth in the world in your division at the 2015 World Championships. And uh, 
in June right, right. now it, are trials for the 2016 national team. You, you traveled as far as Costa Rica to film a documentary about surfing, and you've been in the U.S. Open of Surfing nine times, and you have professional sponsors. What is the U.S. Open of Surfing? The U.S. Open of Surfing is one of the biggest surfing events uh, in the world. It's part of the world tour, and um, Life Rolls On has an expression session, which is basically where myself, Jesse, and a couple of other athletes, all in wheelchairs, go out and um, surf and, you know, do kind of a demo on adaptive surfing. And there are, you know, 100,000 people Whoa. on the beach. Seriously. And, you know, millions watching at home and stuff, and we get to be on this, you know, really kind of worldwide stage showing what we can do. This is really amazing. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about how Judy Fredono found you. You're San Diego-based um, in terms of your, your upbringing, and Jody, Judy Fredono and her dog, her surf, surface dog, Ricochet, are quite famous in San Diego. And she found you, and together you created an even – bigger sensation, although I must say the U.S. Open and Team America <laughs> seems like a little bigger, actually. We'll be right back after this quick break. I am back with Patrick Iveson, who really is a star in so many ways. So Judy Fredono lives in San Diego, really involved with her service dog, who got a, a new career as a surface dog, and wanted to raise money for your physical therapy if you would surf with her dog. Now, you had I didn't understand when I saw the video, you were already a surfing star on your own. Right. I had been surfing for, um, you know, several years at that yeah. point. I was 15 when the when the video was recorded, and, I, you know, I started when I was 8. So, um, pretty but, comfortable. Ricochet, pretty comfortable on a board. And, and Ricochet was pretty yeah. comfortable on a board, too. Right. So, I, I didn't really fully... <laughs> fully understand what we were going to do. Judy, I knew Judy through Positive Team, and she contacted me asking if I wanted to surf with her dog. And I was like, yeah, that sounds fun. Sure. I, mean, I, I don't know exactly what that means. But <laughs> right, good point. And so the original plan was to um, surf next to each other. You know, my, I would be on my board, and Ricky would be on her board, and we'd get some cool shots of that, right, right. get some press, and it'd be fun. And after one of the waves, Ricky jumped off of her board and ran over and jumped on my back. Really? And we were just sitting, we were just in the shallows, you know, a little, little, like, kind of on the beach almost. Right. And she was standing on my back, and we didn't fall off. And we were like, oh, wait a minute, this could be cool. So we just happened to have a really big board. Um, on the beach, kind of just on standby, and we put both, you know, we put me on the front and her on the back and pushed us, you know, our team pushed us into this little wave, and it worked. <laughs> it, it, we, it was totally spontaneous. We had no idea if it was going to work, if it, like, if we were going to fall off. How cool. Her. So this, yeah. so she so, was, she was someone who already was doing her own surfing on a board. There are dogs who surf, and there's dog surf competitions, and there's nice footage yeah. about that out and about. But she wanted to be on the board with you. Yeah, yeah, and 
she's lovely. She's, she's, <laughs> she came over and like licked my face and oh. got on the board and it was really, it was really cute and really fun. And, and um, how did, how did it wind, that, how did it wind up making money for you? How did you raise money? So we, um, we filmed, a, filmed this video and just kind of, it was kind of a campaign video um, for a fundraiser. And so that was, uh, it wasn't directly raising money because of the surfing, but it was, you know, we were like, hey, this is, you know, I, I needed, I, I did a lot of physical therapy in high school, and um, we, it cost a lot of money, and so um, now, was Judy this something and that, Ricochet. Now, let me just interrupt. She, Judy was aware of Positive Teams, P-A-W-S-I-T-I-V-E. Um, which is right. a service dog organization in San Diego. So she was aware of people like you with various kinds of challenges where a dog becomes their right hand, you know, whatever it might be to them. But I'm surprised that physical therapy, I guess most of us that are able-bodied are ignorant of how much insurance covers. It, it only up to a point, right, or to a certain age or something. And then you're on your own? Right. So the type of physical therapy that I was, doing um it was really intensive exercise based physical rehabilitation uh, it was at this place called project walk and because of the nature of the therapy it wasn't the the trainers weren't actually physical therapists they were you know basically personal trainers who had been, gone through special training to work with people with spinal cord injuries and because it wasn't technically, quote-unquote, physical therapy. I see. Um, insurance didn't cover it. But was it incredibly helpful to you? Oh, it was it, the reason I'm able to live the lifestyle I do now. You know, I'm supposed to be paralyzed from the neck down, but I live in North Hollywood independently in an apartment. Wow. With a roommate, with a roommate <laughs> you know? and with your dog, yep. Kona. Yes. So this physical therapy has given you enough mobility, enough ability to function that you are not dependent on your mother or some other human, but able to really be independent with the help that Kona can give you on the side. Right, yeah. Now, I, Kona's been with you, you said, for seven years, and Kona's nine. So did Kona have a previous human that she that he helped? And then... No, he, the, the way that positive teams is structured is they train dogs for two years and then um after that point they you know match, match the dogs up with an owner and um go through training with the owner and the dog at the same time okay so we're going to take another quick break when we come back i want to hear what kona does for you and how you and what about your communication between you is different than the rest of us who are lucky if our dog will sit if we mention it. We'll be right back after this quick word. Patrick, talk about what Kona does for you. So there you are. You're a young man. At this point, you're not in college yet. You're still in high school, and you want to drive, and your mother says there's got to be another being there with you in case, I don't know, you fall getting out of the car, right? I mean, that could happen. must be an right. awkward moment for you, the, int the entry and the exit. So you at that point i'm assuming that you reach out to positive teams or maybe canines for independence and 
you say, here's what I need? You, 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 do you articulate what you need from a service dog, or do they evaluate you and they help you figure it out? Um, it was So I reached out to Canine Companions, and um, they're great organizations yes. and stuff, but there was the, there's an age requirement to be oh. 18. Um, so it would technically be my mom's dog that I would use. Got so it. that's not that's not how we wanted to have it correct because I, correct. the whole point was for me to not be with my mom. Right, to be truly um, independent. And a canine companion right. for independence, they required that you be 18. And there are a lot of service organizations that have these age restrictions. They probably didn't know who they were dealing with with you, like Mr. Champion Surfer. <laughs> but, you know, everyone has their rules. So you found this other right. organization that was, that was more flexible about your age. Right. And um, – Still local, still in San Diego, and um, I reached out to them, and they're significantly smaller than Canine Companions, so they right. only do a few dogs at a time. And so I was on the waiting list, and then um, they called me up and said, hey, we've got a dog. Would you like to come wow. interview and see, like, you know, basically kind of do a personality yeah, a meet me and, and greet. Donna. Yeah, like a, like a right. speed dating. Was that one of the amazing days of your life? Because it was like the doorway to your true independence. Oh, it was incredible. It was absolutely incredible because, uh, you know, I come in the door and there's Kona and all his, like, goofy funkiness. <laughs> and we went through a couple of just basic, you know, basic kind of tricks and training skills and stuff. And um, it, we messed perfectly. Well, fantastic to meet great. you. And uh, really look forward to seeing what you do with your talent and with your degree and uh, your passion. So good luck Thank going you. forward. And I, I hope you'll stay in close touch. And anything filmic you do, if there's a dog in it, you know where to send it. Right my way. Thank you so much, Patrick. Definitely. Thank you. This show is brought to you with the generous support of Halo, holistic, natural cat and dog foods, which are made from real ingredients you can recognize. Halo uses real meat in their kibble, no rendered byproducts, chicken meal, or chemicals. And their new grain-free recipes like Vigor give you even more healthy choices for your pet's dinner, while Daily Greens brings vitamins and digestive enzymes into your dog's diet. Halo is a private company partly owned by Ellen DeGeneres, where they emphasize giving back by making donations to shelters through freekibble.com for pets awaiting a forever home. I am back with Robert Weintraub and the most amazing book ever, ever, ever of not just a dog and a man, but a dog and a war and a man. And what a hideous and horrible war. And what an incredible story. It's called No Better Friend, One Man, One Dog, and Their Extraordinary Story of Courage and Survival in World War II. Rob, welcome to the show. This this book is just astounding in so many ways. It's like, really? Is this did this really happen? It's so amazing. You, you must have had an incredible time unearthing the story and doing what is clearly a yeoman's job of research about World War II and prisoners of war and and what what that what that experience was like. Well, no question. First of all, thanks so much, Tracy. I greatly appreciate that uh, that praise for the book. And yes, I did have a great time doing it. I was uh, frequently astonished, as you point out, by the sort of mounting incredibleness of, of Judy's adventures during, even before, and then during and after World War II, uh, which 
was good. You know, when I first stumbled upon the story, I, I really didn't know much about Judy or anything uh, beyond the fact that she was, you know, a, an official prisoner of war during World War II. That was amazing enough. That brought me down the road to start researching the story in the first place. Uh, but then I discovered that she had, you know, really an interesting life before and after the war began, even, uh, and after the war ended. And that really is what made it a full book to me, not just the fact that she had this astounding World War II adventure uh, and death-defying experiences in the prison camps and uh, on the high seas of the South Pacific, or the South China Sea, I should say. Uh, but the fact that she also, you know, had an interesting life. She was born in China and served on a, a Royal Navy gunboat in the Yangtze River uh, as the ship mascot, but also sort of its unofficial alarm system because uh, Judy proved that she had the sense to uh, be able to, you know, kind of realize when aircraft were coming far faster than any of the uh, the people on the boat could, and, and she really served a purpose by uh, serving as an alarm system against not just airplanes but upcoming river pirates and potential threats from the uh, from the shore. And then when World War II broke out, of course, she had this incredible adventure, and then afterward uh, she was really treated as a hero uh, in, all throughout Great Britain and the uh, the British Empire. So... A heroine, really, I should say. She was a female. Girl. Right, right. Uh, I don't want to don't want to dismiss the, the distaff side of things. <laughs> and uh, she she really had a full and amazing 14 year life, which was uh, old for a dog. Lived on three different continents. Had litter of uh, puppies in three different countries, uh, both before, during, and after World War II. So you're talking about really a, a life in full that. Uh, if it was a human being, would require really an epic, perhaps three-part uh, <laughs> biography. But I, I limited myself to just one book. It's true, and I, and I guess p- part of her fame, and afterwards was because she was a British dog, and these were British prisoners of war, and dogs have held such a high position in British world history, society, forever. I mean, they they're taken quite ser- They've always been taken quite seriously, particularly working dogs. I guess what's extraordinary about her is that if one hears the description of her, you think, okay, that's probably a German Shepherd, or maybe that's a Malinois-type dog, you know, some sort of right. a Doberman Pinscher, uh, a Rottweiler, something that would be like a guard dog or an, an alert dog. And she was the most gorgeous uh, hunting hound. I mean, mm-hmm. the things that she did were not genetically kind of pre-programmed into her DNA. She was an extraordinary individual is what – one has to come away and say, and certainly your book gives her the kind of biography that an extraordinary individual deserves. And her abilities were not necessarily taught. They were intuitive, right? That's very true and a, a very good point. Yeah, she was an English pointer. We should probably uh, mention that. And, you know, you say she was an, a unique individual and, and did things not necessarily genetically bound to her, to her breed. She really never even learned to point. I mean, she yeah, right. <laughs> amazing thing. Uh, you know, they, they originally, part of the reason that the Royal Navy boat, which was called the Nat, the gunboat, they had a whole fleet of the British Navy in the uh, Yangtze River area uh, previous to, prior to World War II, as did many other countries. And, uh, you know, part of the reason that the sailors wanted to go get a, uh, a, a hunting dog was not just to have a mascot on board, which is part of it. They wanted to have, you know, a friendly uh, face to uh, wake up to every morning, I guess. But they also wanted to have a dog that could, you know, help them find game when they right. put, uh, put to shore up right. and down the river. And unfortunately, Judy never really uh, warmed to that particular aspect of her duty. She was above and beyond the call in many other aspects. But in that particular function, she uh, 
the one time she pointed was to point right at one of her shipmates and uh, almost got him uh, <laughs> with a shotgun leg. So didn't quite work out in that sense. However, she more than made up for it in many other ways. And as you say, you know, she, you would have thought that she'd be a, a German shepherd first and foremost, I guess. Uh, certainly America's military dog history is filled with mostly German shepherds, right. especially during that era, um, because they were, you know, generally speaking, you know, more attuned to the to the needs of the battlefield. Judy was never, in that sense, trained as any kind of war dog, uh, and I think that certainly uh, makes her and lets her stand apart from most of the other quote-unquote hero dogs of World War II or any other war, for that matter. Um, she was just a dog who is, A, I guess you'd say in the wrong place at the wrong time. That's right. Uh, very often, and, and kind of rose to the occasion, which was, uh, made her even more special, in, uh, certainly in my eyes. Well, you know, there there have been a few books or even long articles written about various quite remarkable dogs that were in the trenches with people and carried messages, did some quite extraordinary things that they seemed to almost understand what that job was. But the things that she was able to do and the relationship she had with Frank and the, the way that he could train her using techniques that today, all this time later, are known to be the only way to train effectively, clicker training, positive reward, but also a dog so willing and so quick. That is the part that's quite amazing, but really what's distressing in reading it and fascinating is these situations arose from being prisoners of war. And and right. we, we've, we've read, I mean, really good history buffs already know what prisoners of war were like, but, but a book like Lauren Hillenbrand's Unbroken, where you read the descriptions day in and day out of the, the, the degradation, the humiliation, the deprivation, the starvation that, that men were subjected to for not days or weeks, but months and years at a time. And the dog went through it with this man. They ate snakes and rats if they, if they had a good day. And, yes. and, and how did the Japanese allow her to live? I mean, the Japanese had destroyed their own breed of dog, the Akita. And there's that marvelous book written about the one Japanese man that wanted to save the breed and hid out in the mountains. And, I mean, the Japanese had no particular respect or affection for dogs. They took all the Akitas and made them into the linings of coats for their officers, right? Right. So oh, how, did Judy, how did Judy survive when, when someone could have just said, well, let's have her for lunch even? What is yeah, your? What really, do you think? Well, yeah. Sorry to interrupt. It's really the ultimate question that I return to over and over again. Yes. And, uh, you know, at one point I even interviewed a, a POW who happened to be in that camp, an American, one of the few Americans uh, who's still alive, who was in that camp. And I, you know, he said he'd heard about Judy, but was in a different part of the camp and just simply didn't believe it because the, yes. as you say, the depth of the degradations and and the horror that he had to go through on a day to day basis. It was almost impossible to survive for a human being. He had no possible way to, to wrap his head around the fact that the dog managed to survive. But this one dog did, and uh, we should give a lot of credit to Frank Williams, of course. Yes. Was, you know, the person who, uh, he was a, a, an RAF technician. He basically was a radar man uh, in Singapore when the British were basically kicked off the island by the Japanese, no other way to put it. Right. Uh, they were both, Frank and Judy were on separate ships that were sunk in the South China Sea and wound up in prison camps uh, in, on the island of Sumatra, which is the largest in, in the uh, Indonesian chain. Um, they both wound up there separately, independently, but got there and wound up meeting each other uh, in 1942 during the summertime, and Frank gave Judy his entire ration of that day's rice, Aww. which was not very much, but... 
uh, Judy, you know, innately sensed that here was a man starving and yet giving up yes. his, his barely bare sustenance to uh, to let the dog live. And how the Japanese quote unquote let her survive. I mean, you're talking about a dog who was shot at one point, who was right. chased on many occasions, right? Um, lost probably about 65, I think, percent of her body weight, uh, and and really suffered you know, almost as much as, as many of the men did. And, you know, there, there really is no one great answer. That That's she was right. an incredibly cunning animal. Uh, she was very, very lucky. Uh, she had incredible reflexes. And a great part of it was that uh, there twofold. One was that the majority of her time she spent, or a great majority of the time she spent in camps were, which were surrounded by jungle, obviously, and she was able to get into the shadows of the bush easily enough where man did not go easily and fear right. to tread. Right. Uh, at a certain point, they thought to themselves, uh, let the dog live. We don't want to have a brush with the Sumatran tiger or right. uh, some of the other fauna that lived in those jungle. So that helped her. And, uh, you know, obviously the men that she was, you know, bonding with the other prisoners helped her in great many occasions to, you know, avoid the, uh, same fate that befell most of the other dogs in the regions. But, there were, there's in the historical record many occasions where starving prisoners from the West, who we think of as above these things, British prisoners, Dutch prisoners, even some American prisoners, ate dog and cat when they managed to get their hands on them because a starving man doesn't, Yes, you know, has to survive. It's about survival. Exactly. So it was. So it just shows that Judy was held in such high esteem and was trained so well by Frank, as you say, with, with modern methods uh, done intuitively uh, during the 1940s, where he had no prior experience with animals and, and training dogs of any kind. Uh, he was able to teach her to respond to his voice, to the sound of his fingers, to his whistles. And uh, when he told her to disappear because trouble was coming, she did. And yes. when he said the coast is clear, she came back. And it's just astonishing that she managed to do that. Uh, on a, As you say, it wasn't just a one or two time yes. you know, uh, effort. It was, it was day in, day out. The trouble was always there. The danger was omnipresent and yet she managed to come out the other side and you know a, a great deal of her sort of celebration after the war was because of people who realized what an incredible uh you know sort of thing she had just accomplished just by surviving these horrors that were being uh, delivered in freshly uh, daily basis just how bad it was in these japanese camps uh to the british and in the entire british empire um you know they, they really didn't know as opposed to you know what was going on in europe uh which they you know, had a pretty good handle on on a day-to-day basis. The, the camps in, in the Pacific were much more shrouded in mystery. Uh, and, in fact, the camps that Judy and Frank were in mostly were not even known to exist until they were stumbled on uh, right near the end of the war. So we're talking about stuff that was going on literally, you know, in the deep, dark jungle. And the fact that Judy managed to survive that is really pretty amazing. And and was obviously there, or, or part of what she did for men was as a morale booster. And we sort of know that about dogs, that in that in times of trouble, just sitting in your own home in the suburbs, right. that a dog is an incredible <laughs> morale booster. But imagining people who are not just starving to death, but being tortured, hurt, humiliated. Um, apparently, these Japanese guards and and you know, I think your descriptions are at least uh, mirror what we read about or saw in the film of Unbroken. But men who were truly evil to their to their soles of their feet who had these victims that they could torture, like pulling wings off a fly, <clears throat> and having right. that dog there who stood by their side and didn't give up. I mean, we know that dogs, like people, can just give up. 
they're starving, they're worn out, they're exhausted, they could just lie down and die. I mean, dogs do that from broken hearts and so forth. And this dog just stayed the course. And I would think that emotionally she may have helped some of those service people survive. I mean, there they are giving her their rice. Imagine being so hungry and you get one cup of rice with some water maybe a couple of times a day and you give it to the dog and that makes you feel like life is worth living. I mean, there's just so much in this book, Rob, that is deeply moving. And you think, well, what would I do in that circumstance? You know, I mean, these circumstances were so brutal. And I can imagine that in doing the research, there must have been times that were hard for you. It's hard to imagine. It must be hard to depict. Yeah, there's no no question about that. Uh, you mentioned Unbroken. I, uh, I used as sort of the working title for this book, Unhousebroken, just to kind of, uh, <laughs> <laughs> put, it, kind of put it on a canine level. And, that uh, is But there's funny. no question you're right. And, uh, you know, it, it is hard to read about and then to describe the man's inhumanity to man, which was practiced on a, on a daily basis there. Uh, you know, I think we should point out in – fairness is or i guess in fairness to uh the, the japanese a lot of the most brutal torture was actually uh performed by korean guards that had been conscripted into the japanese yes. army and given this crappy uh job yes. you know, to look over prisoners in a backwater you can imagine how uh you know they must have felt and like you say they they basically took out their deep dark anger and frustration at their sort of you know uh japanese captors uh, yes had been pressed into service they took it out on the the prisoners of war, and that included Judy as well. So, uh, yes, there were a lot of deep, dark times where Judy could have given up, Frank could have given up. In fact, he later recounted how he, A, contemplated killing himself or contemplated killing Judy just to put her, you know, yes. to euthanize her. Yes. Um, and, at, and at every time when that, you know, dark thought crossed his mind, you know, usually on some terrible evening where he had been hurt or was, you know, desperately ill from malaria or some other disease that he picked up out in the out bush uh he always managed judy always managed to quote unquote talk him out of it by just yes. you know looking at him in a certain way and, and uh that i think any dog lover or any dog uh, owner would relate to the, the way that dogs are able to you know, sort of assess our state of mind just with a look uh or with an act you know a, a shake of their head and judy was able to do that over and over again with frank and and frank realized that he did not possess the power uh, to do anything of the kind in terms of killing himself and or Judy. So they both, you know, they made the sort of decision to just wake up every day and press on with it. And yes. a lot of other men in the camp did too. And, you know, there's surviving uh, diaries and, and poems that were inscribed through the camp saying basically uh, if Judy can do it, if a dog can do it, yes. so can I. You know, that she provided comfort just by her existence. And you also have drawings that other men made of her. So right. she definitely was there. This was this story was true to the bone. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this isn't <laughs> one happened, man's yeah. imagination. It wasn't like the, the you know, hungry hallucinations. Right. I think the description of how they communicated and how he taught her and trained her and how she understood what he wanted is is just an extraordinary distillation of what can transpire between man or woman and dog, especially under pressure when need is this great. Yeah. It's an amazing yeah, story. Yeah. And, and also, as you point out, there's a whole story. This is not like, oh, God, I, I don't want to read the like depressing wartime story. There's really cool all leading up to it, historically fascinating things we Americans don't 
at least me, American, doesn't know about <laughs> how the British were, you know, and how there were gunships here, there, and everywhere, but also the life they had afterwards, celebrated in England, photographed on radio, uh, you know, given medals, having more babies. I mean, it's not right. like life ended and she just wound up in an old dog's home. She went on no. to lead a very full life. It was just really quite a, it's, it's an amazing tale. Yes, and uh, we're also burying the part which is probably the lead element, which is that she was actually granted official prisoner of war status. She yes. Just, you know, in yes. a camp. But through uh, Frank's bravery, a bit of chicanery, and, uh, you know, feeling that, <laughs> as we mentioned before, he, he probably uh, was going to lose his dog at any moment if he didn't do something. He actually went uh, to the camp commandant, the commander of the camp, a, a colonel, a lieutenant colonel named Bano, uh, who was a little bit less of, a, of the classic martinets that we see in the, in the movies like Unbroken and, and various right. other ones. The Bridge on the River Kwai, of course. Right. Uh, you know, he was a little bit more, you know, an older fella. He was, liked his drink, liked his, lo- liked his local, um, you know, his, his local girlfriend in the neighboring yes. village to the camp there. So he was a bit easier of a touch. And Frank basically went to him when he was uh, already drinking heavily. This man and said um, he offered one of Judy's pups. Judy had had a litter in the camp. Incredibly enough, although most people assume that you know the uh, the father was either a lion or a, you know, a tiger or a goat <laughs> or something because they didn't understand how it was possible there was another dog around and yet right. they, were they found each other. Puppies. Yes, somehow uh, that magic that dogs do, the magic of love. And uh, so he, Frank brought one of the puppies to this camp commander and said uh here's something for your girlfriend in the next uh camp over in the next village over and he was touched by this gesture and uh said thank you and frank said listen all i want in uh in to compensate is to make judy a prisoner of war and uh he you know they went back and forth for a little while and negotiated and incredibly it worked and this, this colonel in the japanese army actually scrawled out an official order on the official parchment saying that yes judy is now prisoner 81a uh, and it was inscribed on her collar and attached, and that collar still exists and is on display at the Imperial War Museum in London. And uh, thanks to that official designation, it actually got Judy out of trouble a couple of times when this Colonel Bano was replaced and other less forgiving uh, commanders came into the camp. And, of course, one of their first you know, uh, inclinations was to shoot Judy or just abandon her to, right. to the jungle. And uh, the fact that Colonel Bannon had actually scratched out this, this order saying that she was an official prisoner of war was kind of just confusing enough to let Judy <laughs> and, uh, it, get away with it in the chaos. It is absolutely an amazing story, Rob. We've, we've run out of time, but I cannot recommend enough to people. No better friend. One man, one dog, and their extraordinary story of courage and survival in World War II. Robert Weintraub, a fantastic book. I doubt in your lifetime you will ever find another story as compelling and fascinating, and you have done it such justice. It's just a treat for all of us. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Tracy. I greatly appreciate the time and uh, and your uh, audits for the book. Thanks. It's a pleasure. Bye-bye. Thank you all for listening. Have a great rest of a weekend. Be sure to grab this book and some of the others I've talked about. They really are delightful. Kiss your kitties, hug your pooches, and we will talk again next week. <laughs>